in this episode, my friend Dr. Paul Cleveland and I have a discussion about his fourth book, The Great Utopian Delusion. Although this book was printed in 2015, it is unbelievably relevant today in 2022. I had fun and hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you. Hey, welcome to the Bank with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery, and I have my friend on Dr. Paul Cleveland. Um, he's a perennial guest. You know, he comes on um basically every time i ask you thank you for that paul oh absolutely um uh dr paul cleveland you know he's a a friend of nelson uh a client of nelson nash's uh he's a phd economist out of birmingham southern and and i really don't know all of your credentials i just know you have a lot of them and they're well earned if you could expand on the uh all the the things that you participate in paul well, sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm a professor of finance and economics at Birmingham Southern. Um, and I became an educational entrepreneur back in 2003 and ended up uh, publishing my first book, Understanding the Modern Culture Wars. And, uh, Clarence Carson was one of my mentors, and he was actually the, the one who got me to do that. I did and, not know that. Yeah, he he, um, he was working on basically history and social science for high schoolers. And he had written six-volume American history set. He had uh, written uh, an economics text. And his last uh, book was American Government. And so he was calling them all basic American history, basic economics basic American government. And really, I think what he wanted to do is basic Western civilization. But he was getting it along in years and he didn't want to do the work. So he, <laughs> you know, I can relate to that. <laughs> let's find this young, uh, scrapping um, young man in academia and get him to do it. So, um, but he was very gracious with his time to read what I was you know, writing and to make recommendations. And so, you know, that's kind of how I got started. Now, the way I ended up self-publishing was that I had finished the manuscript and I thought the organization that he had created, we would publish it through there. And he came to me, he said, Paul, I really think you need to find another publisher. Well, that wasn't <laughs> And he did it for two reasons. He had lost his largest retailer of books, and his health was also declining, and he knew that. And so he he knew that I really needed to look um, to do something else. Anyway, long story short, I had a, he had self-published. So here I had, my mentor had done this and uh, a counselor of mine just suggested, well, Paul, why don't you do it? And so we did and launched Boundary Stone. Uh, Our website now is boundarystone.org and we published that first book. And, you know, I think God was gracious. We broke even on the book within about six months. Wow. So I thought, oh, this this stuff is easy. (laughs) (laughs) It really hasn't been that easy. But, um, and I won't go into the story, but the long and short of it is that over time, um, more and more of Dr. Carson's books have come to me. As a matter of fact, I now own the uh, publishing and copyrights to all of uh, what he had done. So, um, and, and we're keeping it alive and we're trying to repackage it for uh, high schoolers. Uh, our target markets primarily, I think, homeschoolers. Um, but beyond homeschoolers, I think it would be, these are excellent books for um, almost any school that really wants to study history as it was instead of the remake history that's so often out there in government school education i i agree now that first book y'all did was understanding the modern culture wars or basic Uh economics 
it was understanding the modern culture there. Okay. And then, because I know of four books you've written, there may be more. Right. Okay. Uh, the second book I did, I did for a popular audience, and it actually sprung out of a class I was teaching at the time uh, on public choice. And I titled it Unmasking the Sacred Lies. And in actuality, what it is, it's an economic history of public policy in America. So I just go through uh, policy area after policy area and how, where did government get involved and then how they screw it up and what did they do after they screwed it up, but they screwed it up more. Yeah. <laughs> a fabulous book. I think yeah. that was the first book of yours that, that I was introduced to. Right. Um, and then after that one, that's where I got involved with beginning to update uh, Clarence's work. I took the basic economics, which is, you know, really my field, and it really needed to be updated. I, I liked it a lot, but it, it, it really needed some work. And so I took that and I got the copyright to it and we republished it in a third edition. And my son came to me and he said, well, you know, Dad's a nice book and all, but uh, if we're going to target actual homeschoolers, we need to make it better for them <laughs> to make it more user friendly in that area. So we ended up uh, between the two of us working on that one and redoing it and building an online course to go with it. And we also have an online course with government as well. And right now we're working on American history. So, Perfect. When is the American history going to be done? Well, our first, we're taking that six volume set and we're going to have two uh, books and it'll be American history one. And that will be aimed at ninth grade. And so roughly it goes from, you know, the exploration of America all the way up to about the late 1800s. So, you know, eight, uh, bits and pieces of 1890 and that sort of thing in there. And then the next volume, American History 2, will go from that point in time to the present. And that would be 10th grade. Uh, at that point, what we'll do is we'll probably redo um, either Western Civilization text. I titled it Understanding the Modern Culture Wars, but we'll probably retitle, redo that book and retitle it with the basic theme, basic Western Civilization, uh, and, and keep those titles. <laughs> That would be a great overlay and a continuation, it sounds to me like. Right, right. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we are um, in terms of development. And, you know, it's, it's, this is a family venture <laughs> for me, you know. So it, we're, we're doing the best we can as we push forward and, and get that done. Yeah, I love that. That's a great opportunity most people don't get to have or enjoy, right. you know, family ventures. <clears throat> um. And that kind of takes us up to the book that I kind of would like for you to talk about today, okay. right? The Great Utopian Delusion. Um, right. So, The Great Utopian Delusion, um, the origination of that book was actually from Nelson Nash. Uh, Nelson was having some back trouble, and so he was laying on the couch in his office, and uh, he saw a book that Dr. Carson had written back in the 1970s taught, titled The World in the Grip of an Idea. And so he called Mary Ann and he pointed to the book. He says, Mary, get, get that book down for me. I want to read it, reread it. So she got it down and he reread it. And <clears throat> he came to me and said, Paul, we've got to republish this book. Well, the problem was that book is a great book, but it was five, nearly 500 pages and it was academic. There's no market for that book. Nobody's going to buy and read that book. And so I thought about it and I said, um, what if we uh, use that as a core, we borrowed from it and we did something 
that's more, much more readable and then also that, that can reach a popular audience and, and get all the best ideas out of it. He thought that was a great idea. So I, I enlisted uh, a friend of mine that we went to grad school together, Dwayne Barney, and uh, we began to work on that project. And there were twists and turns, but uh, we, I had to actually go out and retrieve the copyright to that book from a publisher in New York. <clears throat> they had the publication rights and the copyright. Now, Clarence had the copyright. They had the publication right. And, but we had to petition uh, them to get that signed back over to us. And, and part of that was give them 30 days to republish or relinquish the publication. Uh -huh. <laughs> Fortunately, that was in Clarence's contract. And, and so we were able to get it done. Uh, and we came out with it. And, and that was 2015. But that book accurately describes exactly what the political situation is today. Exactly. It, it's right on target. Clarence saw this, I mean, he saw this years ago, back in the 70s. He understood this. And he taught it to me. I, I, I had read that book. I thought it was a great book. Um, it was interesting, too, because when the Soviet Union collapsed, everybody was jumping up and down. OK, socialism is over. And Clarence just sat back and said, y'all aren't paying attention. <laughs> it's not over. We're, it's very much still alive and we're in the thick of it. Uh, of course, in the Western world, we're in the thick of it in terms of evolutionary socialism. That is socialism given to you piecemeal, yeah. one, one bite at a time. And I, I think most people don't realize both political parties by far and away are socialist parties. Uh, the only difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is, do you want your socialism packed in heavy syrup, which is the Democrats, or do you want it packed in light syrup, which is the Republicans? Or another way to put it, you want it, you want Budweiser or Bud Light? <laughs> yeah. It's either creeping socialism or galloping socialism. Just galloping socialism. That, that, and that's, uh, and right now we've got <laughs> runaway. Yeah, runaway. <laughs> runaway. And, uh, and the lie is you know it's just astounding how these people uh are willing to lie and deceive and cheat and steal you know all the other you know i remember um reading the book i think he, nelson even shared an excerpt of the uh of the draft with me but he told me not to tell you at the time but he didn't share the whole draft with me, just a little section, because uh -huh. he was so excited about it, right? Uh -huh. And I'm like, man, I can't wait to read it. And so when it was published, I read it, and now that's been seven years or, yeah, roughly. And so when you, uh, you know, agreed to come back on and to talk about this, I thought, well, James, you ought to refresh yourself, you know, and pick right. that book up again. And so I did, and I haven't completed it again for the second reading but oh my gosh it, it's as if it it is so relevant i mean there's no question it's if clarence wrote about it 50 years ago right and seen it 50 years ago and and i've seen his original work too i haven't read that i've seen the big voluminous work yeah right? and this this is a easily digestible very easily read and unbelievably accurate in right. my opinion of what's going on today and and it, I think it, you know, maybe if uh, if I can use your words, you know, the the incremental or the piecemeal, yeah, um, it's almost like we're we're in a daze or we're asleep and we're just accepting it, but not putting the connecting the dots, not putting the big picture together of what's yeah, really right. going on. I, I think that's exactly right, and most people don't because you know they've been lured to sleep and they've been willing to accept it without really thinking it through as to what they're accepting. Um, you know, one of the stories that, that I 
use oftentimes um, with people on this that what you're doing it by by going down the socialist path what you're doing is you're giving up your freedom and one of the stories that i tell is about uh, a congressman stephen pace and this congressman this was in the 1920s and he'd been asked to come back to his district and explain to the people why he would not vote for a farm subsidy bill now his district was a rural district in georgia and uh so most of his constituents were farmers who potentially would be benefited from this particular piece of legislation. At any rate, so they had a barbecue on the banks of the Altmulgee River, and he came to explain why he would not vote for this bill. When he got there, he said um, he got up to speak to the subject, and instead of speaking directly to it, he pointed, he said, ladies and gentlemen, he pointed at the river, he said, just a few miles down this river, there's a bend in the river. And at one time there were a pack of wild hogs that lived out in that bend in that thicket. And they lived through every kind of natural disaster you can imagine through fires, freezes, floods, droughts, you name it, they survived. As a matter of fact, they were so wiry that for a hunter to be able to get off a clean shot and, and actually kill one, that, that would make the local news. Well, one day a, a man rode into the local town and um, he had, you know, was in his wagon. He got slowly out of his wagon, went into the general store. And he went up to the store owner and he was asking the whereabouts of that thicket and those hogs. So the store owner gave the man directions and he walked slowly out of the store, got back on his wagon, rode out of town. Well, the store owner really didn't think much about that until about five or six months later, the same man came back into the store owner and he said, sir, I was wondering if maybe, you know, some people, some men who would like to make a little extra money. I've got I've got all these hogs in a pen out by the river and I need to I need help bringing them into market. Well, the store owner was amazed. He said, you can't, you, there's no way you captured all those hogs. He said, well, you, you're willing to come out and see. I mean, you, I'll, you know, you're free to do that. Well, the, the news traveled through the town. Everybody had to go out and see this thing. So they all went out to the, where the thicket was and those hogs. And sure enough, this guy had a big pen built. He had all those hogs in it. And the people were just astounded they were amazed how in the world this is impossible nobody could catch all these hogs he said actually it was pretty easy when i first got out here i just threw out a couple ears of corn those hogs wouldn't go near the corn for the first three weeks but finally a couple of the young ones ran out of the brush picked up a couple of ears and beat back off into the thicket so i just put kept putting out corn every day and then pretty soon I thought they were all eating it. So that's when I started to build the uh, pen. I built it a little higher, a little further around every day. And when I finally noticed they quit foraging for roots and berries and such, I put a trap door on that pen so they could all get into that corn but couldn't get back out. I said, I can trap any animal on the face of this earth. It'll just depend on me for a free handout. <laughs> And, you know, it's a great story. It gets right to the point. Yeah. You know, dependency on Washington, D.C. is giving up your freedom uh, because whatever the government giveth, the government can take it away. Yeah. And the government can't give you anything that it hasn't taken from someplace. Uh, and so it, so all of socialism is nothing but a system, a political system of theft, and it's rooted in theft because it's rooted in Marxism, and Marx had a criminal mind. Uh, he wanted to steal everything, uh, and so you know that's um, that's what he imagined, and that we're gonna we're gonna steal everything, uh, and and so really that's what they're uh, about doing. They've perfected it. I mean, they oh. that's. 
you know, all they do. I, uh, I'm from Texas, and I would like them to think about meeting every two years instead of every year. Yeah. Because there's really only two things that they do when they when they get together and when they meet. They take away your property and right. your rights. That's all they do. Yeah, that's there's, about it, Ed. And they create fear. I mean, they're, they're doing it oh, again. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know when they're going to get over this COVID thing. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, at, at this point, okay, it looks like COVID is here to stay. <laughs> so, you know, it's time to live with it, just like you live with the flu. You know, yeah. I mean, um, that's where we're at. No, they if they if they need a new variant, they'll just create it, right? <laughs> well, I, I think it. Just, I think the thing once out of the bag, it, it is very, but. It's varying ways. It might be more contagious, but it's less deadly. Um, I think that saw the numbers, the latest numbers are across the spectrum. Uh, the new variant death rate is under 1%. That's even for old people. And remember, it was that's what we were so worried about earlier because the death rate among the elderly with the original had been around 5%. And, and then for younger people, it was um, inconsequential. Um, so, but, and that's, that created a lot of fear early on. But now, I mean, the death rate uh, with COVID is actually lower than that with the flu. Well, they, they've uh, used it to gin up fear no question about that i mean it's like a tool that's a tool they depend upon is fear generating fear uh, yeah that was one of nelson's favorite terms for washington dc the fear factory yeah fear factory (laughs) (laughs) well how how do you know how the uh constituents and uh mr pace's uh Neck of the woods down there, how they received that. I I think story. they got the message. I mean, the message is not hard to um, miss when in a story like that. Right. Now, whether they like the message or not, <laughs> you know, I mean, because, it, you know, we're all out there. I mean, you know, people, it's so easy to, to try to get something for nothing. And, um, and to try to justify that. So I, I think there are always people willing to do that. But if you're moral, you know, morality would say, no, that's not really the way we ought to go. So. You, you talk a, uh, a little bit about, you know, morality in your in this book, The Great Utopian Delusion. Um, you know, the. Uh, governments at some level must exist but they're filled with people right right they have potentially moral issues sure um then if they're immoral i mean you're gonna have an immoral government right and uh and that's one of the reasons you would want to limit the power of government you know and 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 make it very specific because there is a role for government for us to live in relative peace and order, then hardcore wrongdoers need to be punished. One one thing our governments seem to want to get rid of is actually punishing uh, murderers, rapists, and thieves. But that's what government ought to be doing. They import them now. This is the craziest thing in the world. Um, That's that's what you need government to do. You don't need it to provide. The governments can't provide for anything. They can't provide for you. They're they're institutions that are absolutely dependent upon the citizenry for their existence. And, and the question to be asked is, in, in a way, government is the collective use of force against wrongdoers, right? And so the question then is, when is it legitimate 
for an individual to use violence or force? Well, if somebody is attacking you, right? If somebody's trying to mug you on the streets, then it's legitimate for you to use force to stop them. You know, this gentleman up in New York who's operating a bodega and a thug comes in and is harassing him, shaking him, and his girlfriend stabs him. And he picks up a knife and gets the boyfriend who dies. And the DA there is charging the the owner of the bodega with murder. That's insanity. That is insanity. Uh, Self-defense is legitimate. And so governments should be, uh, you know, tracking down the woman who knifed the owner. Uh, It was self-defense in terms of uh, this man dying. I mean, he was the aggressor. Um, and for somebody to defend themselves, that's perfectly just. So governments should actually be working, you know, uh, as the collective action of the people to protect their life, their liberty, and their property, period. That's it. Uh, And when we get beyond that, then we start moving towards really – ugly government because it, it just not government's not well suited to do other things they are well suited to blow stuff up to destroy stuff and all that <laughs> but they're not well suited to you know have schools and you know everything else under the sun yeah it's profitable for them to blow things up so they can make more profits rebuilding them all right yeah. Yeah. you know it, it uh there has to be an end somewhere the, uh, well, this is typically, unfortunately, this is usually how nations collapse. I mean, if you know history, this is the way the Roman Empire collapsed. Um, and, and really, one of the big issues with the collapsing um, Roman Empire was, was owed to its inflation, monetary inflation. And we have a lot of that going on right now. Um, I was just looking at the numbers the other day. Are you interested in some of these numbers? Maybe. Bring them on. All right. Uh, and you, I think you've known this. Uh, Bob Murphy has done this at, at a number of the think tanks. And sure. uh, So back in 2008, when we had the real estate crisis, the monetary base, which is referred to as high-powered money, that is uh, the dollar value of the assets held by the Federal Reserve. Okay, so the federal, in, in essence, and it doesn't work exactly like this, but it, essentially the same. The Federal Reserve has the power to create up money out of thin air and buy up securities. And for the longest time, what the Federal Reserve was buying up were largely uh, U.S. treasuries. All right, so their total asset holdings in August of 2008 was $847.6 billion. Then we had the real estate crisis. And so by April of 2009, their asset holdings had jumped from that to $1.75 trillion. Double. Double, yeah. Um, and this is considered high-powered money, right? So Government securities, out, right? Yeah, I mean, if it gets yeah. out in the commercial banking system, slend <laughs> out, it could be a factor of 10, right? Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then we went through the, all the quantitative easing. By October of 2014, the monetary base was at $4 trillion. Uh, In March of 2020, I had gone down a little to $3.9 trillion. But, all right, so that that was the beginning of the pandemic. All right. 
by December 2021, the monetary base had increased to $6.4 trillion. Yeah. Uh, April 2022, so just recently, it stood at $5.9 trillion. Now, <clears throat> one would have thought, okay, we would have saw price increases that were exorbitant. And of course we didn't. And, and I think Bob, you probably are familiar with this one, did a great job of explaining why, because excess reserves went way up because the Federal Reserve back in 08 started paying banks interest on their excess reserves. Don't lend it out. And um, so their excess reserves in July of 08 stood at $1.9 billion. And, and around that, if you look historically around that $2 billion um, in all of the commercial system, that was pretty standard. Uh, that was virtually zero excess reserves in the system. By December 08, those excess reserves had gone up to $767 billion from one from two, two billion. Wow. <laughs> uh, by August uh, 2014, it was at 2.7 trillion. Now, in in January of 2020, it had dropped some. It was at 1.5 trillion, but still went well on up there. But by June of 2020, it was back up to three trillion. And then, if you look at the interest rates that the Fed was paying started out at half a percent. But this is a great deal for banks. So sure. that they have money and excess reserves that was literally just given to them by the Fed. And the Fed says, oh, we're going to pay you interest on this, not to loan it out. <laughs> what a great deal. <laughs> well, they kept having to step it up. So they stepped it up to three quarters of a percent, to one percent, to one and a half percent. At its height, the Fed was paying 2.4 percent interest in 2019. Now, since then, they've given up that gap, and and it's dropped back down. Now that they're only paying 0.15 percent on excess reserves to banks, and so banks have started lending stuff out again. Um, just some numbers on monetary measurements. Um, so M1 uh, is one of the measures of the money supply, and then M2 is a little bit broader. It includes more stuff. So M1 in February 2020 stood at $4 trillion. By July 2020, it was $16.8 trillion. In April of 2022, it was $20.6 trillion. M2, which is a broader measure, in other words, includes more stuff. The increase is not, because it includes so much other sorts of things, it's not quite as great a growth as the um, M1, but in January of um, 20, it stood at $15.5 trillion. And in June of 2022, it's now at $21.7 trillion, which is a 40% increase in the money supply. So uh, with that kind of increase in the money supply, you can imagine uh, – what money prices, what's happening to money prices. And the current administration is only piled on by restricting production of various sorts. And, uh, you know, making it more difficult to uh, produce crude oil and, and the like. Those sorts of things have just really exacerbated the situation, if you will. New regulations, increasing costs, all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Um, so we still uh, 
have faith in the U.S. dollar, though. Thank goodness, all right? Well, um, I don't see – I mean, you know, what other – I don't think we're going to do business in other currencies necessarily. Um, you know, the cryptocurrencies, I, I don't consider those real money right now because, you know, for, for something to be acceptable as money, it's got to be readily accepted. It's got to have stable value. Cryptocurrencies have neither one. So, um, and and a lot of people I don't think have really understand them at all. So I, I don't think they're a sound alternative. I really uh, can't see us trying to use gold and silver coins at this juncture. Um. We you know, could get to that, I suppose, at some point, but um, we will have, uh, you know, we, we, this hole that we've dug is deep. And, but, you know, the, uh, our overall economy is pretty darn big. And I think people need to understand that, that uh, the economy is, is still pretty large and, all is not lost. My whole thing in suggesting to people is invest in what you know. And um, by doing that, then, you know, whatever you're an expert in, try to be entrepreneurial, build a business out of it. You know, people, no matter where we are, we're all going to need things. Right? Yeah. We're all going to need things. And uh, the only way to be successful at that is to trade, right? Because I'm not good at everything. You know, we're zooming over here. I've got my, I've got my Apple uh, uh, Air, MacBook Air here. And, you know, we're zooming online. I have no clue how this stuff works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got an AV Ninja is why I'm here. Yeah. I don't know how it works either. <laughs> So, I mean, we need people. We need people to do things that we don't have a clue about. And and so, well, what, what do I really know about? Well, I know a heck of a lot about history and economics and finance. Yeah. And um, so, that's what, if I can build a business that provides educational opportunities for people to understand things in an easy way, because you People need to understand these things if you're going to protect yourself, right? You can't protect yourself if, you, if, if you're taken in by uh, the schmucks up in Washington. And they don't want you to understand it. Is that um, a technical term, sir? <laughs> Schmuck? <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think people should invest in themselves and what they know. Right. Um, that's the best investment. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you should be financing everything that you're going to purchase anyway. And that's why I promote, you know, the infinite banking concept, Nelson's work, because um, it's not going to change. I mean, the federal government doesn't even have the ability to restrain itself. Right. It's not It's not going to wake up one day and say, oh, we've got too many employees. Right. No way. And, uh yeah. But, you know, you think about that. I mentioned I started the business in 2003. Yes, hell yes. If I had not started IBC, I don't think that would have happened. Is that right? Well, I mean, where did I get the funding for? <laughs> right. And you, you controlled the whole cash flow. You controlled That's the right. whole banking function. So, you know, I said I broke even. So, took out a loan, printed books up, sold books, <laughs> paid off one. I love that. Yeah. And the people, you know, the listener will have the opportunity to purchase your books in the notes, you know, below. Okay. Um, I think I have, a, I think we, we, we carry a couple of your books, several of your books, maybe all of your books, but um, we'll put your store in there as well. Okay. Now, at the end of the day, the, you know, we have a great empire here and they have the uh, military industrial, you know, security complex to ensure that the, you know, uh, world reserve currency is still accepted at some level. And, right. 
and you know at the um there's a big struggle going on worldwide and of course the chinese would love to take over the u.s position as the currency of exchange i i don't think they can actually make that happen um you know they the problem that they have is they've been they've been playing this mercantilist game of maintaining exports and trying to peg their currency uh, exchange rates in order to keep that those export markets going that's a loser's game you know it, it, that one doesn't work um, as a matter of fact I was in China in uh, two, 2008 it actually is October 2008. <laughs> so, uh, real estate uh, crisis was going big. And uh, so, I was in China. I was lecturing at different universities, really basic economics lectures. Okay. So, one evening, I was at their technical university in the city that I was in, and I was giving this lecture. And it was in a huge, the auditorium was filled. There must have been at least 300 uh, Chinese students filling the, uh, the auditorium. And they, were, they all wanted to practice their English. They're all in an English club. And so I gave my lecture. And there was a young man um, at, raised his hand right off for the Q&A. And I, so I pointed to him. And he goes, uh, Professor Cleveland. Uh, your country have financial crisis. I said, yes, yes, we, we do. Uh, he says, uh, Professor Cleveland, you know, Bank of China owns lots of U.S. debt. I said, yeah, I, I know that. I know that. And then he asked another question. He says, he asked me, do you understand uh, what would happen to your crisis should Bank of China sell debt? And I said, well, it would get a lot worse, wouldn't it? And then he got to his real question. Well, can you think of any reason why Bank of China should not sell? And I looked at him and I said, quite frankly, I can't think of any good reason why the Bank of China bought it in the first place. <laughs> uh, I mean, you understand what I'm saying? You guys are on the hook, too. you got to find a buyer for that crap. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> you should have always along the way allowed for the U.S. dollar to depreciate against your currency. Now, it would have made the stuff you're making more expensive for us. That's true. And we wouldn't have bought as much of it. But you have a billion people. And, you know, they're working and producing stuff. Why, why don't y'all buy it? Right, um, and, but they can—they're they're very short-sighted, and they can't see it. Um, so, and they're becoming even more short-sighted under this current regime. I mean, this guy's—you know—he's total communist lunatic, and so he's killing really what they've had, and. And, you know, by putting the kibosh on everything. So I'm not at all sure that China's in a position that they're going to be able to do anything much with that. Right. Now, the threat is there because of their military. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's this huge threat, but militarily, uh, but economically, I don't, I'm not sure I see it. I think I read a headline either last night this morning sometime that a, a pretty large bank in China uh, closed and created a run on that particular bank. Right. Um, well, they built a lot of stuff that is, this is the, sort of the Asian mentality too. The, the Japanese have done this. I think the Koreans to an extent have done some of this where they, they sort of have this engineering mindset. Yep. If we can figure out how to do it, then we should. You know, it's like a bullet train or uh, a lot of this other sort of stuff. 
our build an airport at sea that's sinking. <laughs> <laughs> Cities uh, that have no occupants. <laughs> right, exactly. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not economic. Nope. I mean, just because you can build it doesn't mean it's a good idea to build it. <laughs> and so they, they, they don't think like economists. Um, and that is a, a huge flaw. If they ever get the economics right, the people themselves are tremendously entrepreneurial. Yeah. So if they ever figure out economics, uh, I mean, China can be a, a really a thriving economy, but only when they really become a true free market and they're, retri- they're retrenching away from that. Yeah. You know, they had moved from being communistic to being mercantilistic, which, you know, that, that helped them out tremendously. And they had those free market zones. and They went from heavy um, syrup to light syrup, huh? <laughs> to, yeah, but now they're heading back to heavy syrup. Yep. You know, uh, full-blown heavy heavy syrup. And so, <clears throat> you know, that's I, – I wonder if in the United States th- that the socialists have gone way too far and that the blowback is going to be incredible. Um this time around, because uh, I don't think people put up with it. And unlike uh, China, um, we have guns. <laughs> Record sales of guns. <laughs> Record <laughs> sales. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing in the U.S. that is so different, and I don't, I don't think we're giving up guns anytime soon. Um, <laughs> Record Record sales. I know. I mean, uh, so, uh, and I'm wondering how much the military would actually go with them in the in the U.S. You, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't either. I'm afraid more than more than we can. No, more, more yeah. than we'd want and want to. Yeah, I mean, how do, how do uh, how does the military go along with every empire throughout history that has traveled all over the known world, destroying? people yeah. and civilizations well that's true you know it's taught right <clears throat> paid for with big money good money right uh, right so i mean you're you know it's this whole thing about uh patriotism right yeah it's inculcated you know, I didn't know uh and i learned this from nelson nash before world war Two. uh when you know the people the school children pledged allegiance to the flag do you know they they had their arm out forward saluting oh, right, the flag yeah, yeah. And they got away from that quit doing that because it resembled the nazi salute right yeah well there's so many things about the new deal in that time period that resembled nazi germany oh yeah like 30s yeah um so it's it's just embedded it, just that socialism well, of course we can't call it that in the US people say oh we don't have socialism no well yeah we do um, you know we have socialist schools and all kinds of socialists you know I tell this story often <clears throat> because it's mine and it is very you know impressed upon me so when i was going into high school you know you had to go up in the summertime to pick your classes Mm -hmm. and uh you know the hard worker that i am i was always working so i was one of the last guys to show up and pick the classes right and uh you know you're supposed to start out with american history in ninth grade high school well, those classes were filled up. Not that I had a choice to do that or not, but those classes were full. So I had to take uh, government first. Okay. And so the next year, I was able to go back and take American history. And I had a nice, lovely lady teacher. And I, and I had this book for the longest time. I mean, this was some years ago now, but. The high school American history curriculum, the the textbook. And it's 
you know, different chapters cover different topics. Right. And one of the chapters covered FDR's New Deal. And then a chapter, bef- a couple of chapters before or a couple of chapters after, um, it was talking about the um, the the communist socialism, but the communist manifesto was covered in that chapter. Right. So I'm flipping back and forth between the two chapters and there's not much difference in the programs at all. Right. That, it, and that's true. I pointed that out to my history teacher whom FDR was obviously her idol and she she threw me out of the class (laughs) she did because I I just said they're the same thing you know and she got she it made her angry well if you go through that 10 point plan uh, that Marx laid out right I mean he, he wasn't in favor of gradualism or evolutionary socialism but he he did put a ten point plan together, and almost every all of those ten points they've been pushing um, for quite some time. So to to say that FDR and the Democrats are not socialists is is ridiculous. Yeah, I like to you know I think it was a, at least the second great wave of socialism through the U.S. You know, um, you know, well, we've, been through, we've been through a few. Yeah. Uh, it, it began with Woodrow Wilson. Now, we didn't have, um, you know, at that time, if he hadn't had a stroke, it would have been possible for Wilson to run again as president. Uh, and but that was, you know, in in uh, nineteen twenty. But, you know. Waiting with the stroke of good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Aaron Burr, you know, yeah, that was a good stroke of luck. It was just a little late, right? <laughs> um, that, you know, we he, he couldn't do it. So, you know, the deal was that we had a reprieve with uh, Cooling and, um, you know, Harding at that time period. But then we had Hoover. Hoover was terrible. You know, um, I, I was just I was talking about Hoover at a pool party the other day. You know, a friend of mine, I love him dearly. You know, he was going on and on about how great Hoover was, and he was talking about Ukraine and you know the bread bras- bread basket of the world and and kind of modern. You know what's going on over there um, and the devastation of Ukraine. And and th- this is the third or fourth time that this hap- that's ha- that's happened. You know, Hoover. There's a backstory to Hoover before he became president and all the shenanigans that he did and all the money that he made, you know, uh, right. pilferaging, you know, the, uh, the, uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian wheat. And then I have, a, and I have another friend who has a German heritage and he was telling me how the Germans loved, loved him because he fed them, you know, the wheat. Right. Well, and, and they're only like, there, there's only parts of history that, that um, these individuals and even myself are referring to, but when you put it all in totality, none of them are good guys. None of them. No, none of the no. Poli- none of I don't them. know. Um, in fact, Hoover paved the way for um, for Roosevelt uh, because he was so bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, he he set off. Uh, well, he and Congress set off the international trade war with a Smoot-Hawley tariff. And that collapsing worldwide trade that followed that was that 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 opened the door for Adolf Hitler to rise to power in Germany with his nationalism. What? the Nazi Party. I mean, Nazis stood for the National Socialist Party. They were nationalist socialists, and, and the only thing different between his socialism and Russia's socialism is that it had a national focus rather than a worldwide focus. Yeah. But same, you know, brothers under the skin. Yeah. Um, so people just get that wrong. They they think, and they think that. 
somehow um, the war, you know, between Russia and Germany was their opposite sides of the political spectrum. Well, no, that's not, that's, that's an incorrect view. That's not that altogether true. Uh, most political leaders in the 20th century, uh, to some degree, they were all embracing uh, a military welfare complex and, and piecemeal movement towards socialist society. And their tool to get there, of course, the education system, you got to control it because you got to control the message. Uh, with the collapse of um, the Soviet Union, Marxists adopted environmentalism as their new method of consolidating power and control. And so that's why, I mean, I, I refer to modern-day environmentalists as watermelons. They're, yep. they're green on the outside, but you cut them open, and they're actually just the same old red yeah. <laughs> commies. <laughs> and, I mean, they're, now, the environmentalists, the deep ecologists, their agenda is different. Uh, they want to destroy humanity because they think human beings are a plague on the planet. And they'll, they say as much. Uh, and to a certain extent, this mixture of deep ecologists and of the leftists, over time, has kind of merged a little bit because most of these intellectuals have bought into the notion of Paul Ehrlich's population bomb that we have too many people. Uh, and I saw a meme on social media. It says that um, uh, you are the carbon that they want to reduce, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, pretty. I think uh, there's something to be said about that. I haven't seen that meme. I, I've I've been saying that for over a year. Oh yeah. I mean, no, that I, that is. I think that's. Part of their, they've adopted that one yes. as part of their agenda, and it, it's almost like they run in these little circles and they never get out of their circle anymore to actually talk with anyone. And all they can see is the places where they want to go vacation. There are more people there. Why are there more people there? Because more people can afford to be there. And so they have to pay more <laughs> to get away from the more people. And so they, that, that's their notion. But if you look at it, the numbers just aren't there. For example, population density. Well, Ehrlich did his book based upon his time in New Delhi. And, and, and the, I don't know if you've read the book, but the not. opening of the book is people people everywhere you know it's hot it's dirty we're riding in a cab there's just people 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 well yeah i mean in new delhi yeah there are a lot of people and they're they're poor all right but the population density of india is actually lower than the population density of the netherlands <laughs> Um, why? Well, the Netherlands is relatively rich by comparison. People, you know, you you live better. Um, so it's not it's not population density at all. There's, uh, I remember reading uh, P.J. O'Rourke's book, Eat the Rich, and he's he's talking why some countries rich and other countries poor, and he's traveling in Russia. And he took a train all the way east <laughs> through Siberia. And as he's on the train, he's, he's, he's taking notes, he's writing, they could use a little urban sprawl out here <laughs> because there's nothing, nothing. there. <laughs> there's nothing. Mile after mile after mile of nothing. 
<laughs> and uh, except trees and, you know, and that's it. Uh, I mean, and it's that way up in Canada too, right? I mean, there are lots of places in Canada. It's just nothing up there. So actually, if we, if we warm the globe a little, I mean, people might move there. <laughs> now, in fact, we might move there out of Texas and Alabama to, uh, or maybe just go back to better refrigerants for our <laughs> ACs and uh, stay inside in the summer. And um, Listen, it's 105 down here talking about I know, refrigerants. So you, and you stay inside and you run your AC. Okay. Or the swimming pool. It's one of or the this one. Oh, there's, there's, you know, we, we have options. Right. And, um, but it's always been hot in Alabama and Texas in the summer. Heck, when I was doing my PhD work at Texas A&M, um, that's one of the hottest places on the planet. <laughs> you know? um, yep. When, when was that? When were you? When so, were I was there, there from 1980 to 85. Yeah, see, 80, we set up all the records in 1980 that we can barely, can't really break them. We can tie some of them yeah. to the heat. Well, it was it was hot. I mean, it was like our typical day in the summer was, uh, you know, ninety five to hundred degrees with ninety five percent humidity. So, it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you you take a shower, you walk outside, you you can't even tell. You you, you might as well still back back in the shower. You know, so. Well, nineteen eighty was that was hot. There was some record setting, and then just walking outside, shower, walking outside. That's the, that's daily life in Houston, Texas. Oh yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, oh, and and then College Station, yep. basically the same way. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember one of uh, the wife of one of our my peers in the program. She was getting her car, and she uh, happened to put her knee down on the console where they had some money, some coins. <laughs> So she got a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> got branded. <laughs> branded. <laughs> branded. It's hot. Yeah, it's hot. It well, listen, Paul, we've been going for about an hour. Um today and I could I could talk all day. I appreciate you and uh, the way you think and the way you write and what you write, you know. So um any any anything in closing? Do you want to cover or mention? Uh, I I think, you know, we were talking about just the fact that I think that people really need to be, have an entrepreneurial mindset. If if we're going to take back the country, we have to embrace, I think, really important to embrace individual responsibility. That I'm responsible for my life and how I live it. And part of that then is how am I going to interact with other people? Do I, do I want to try to enslave them through political means to achieve my ends, which that's not individual responsibility? Or do I want to accept responsibility for myself to produce something of value for my neighbor? And engage in a voluntary trading relationship with those around me that's mutually beneficial. And so I think that that is the starting point uh, in my estimation. Um, and I think part of that, uh, you know, and I'll go back to this and I don't know what other people would think, but I think part of doing that is embracing the gospel message because until I recognize my own shortcomings and my own wishes to live off others at times, which I've been guilty of doing. I did it against my parents for years um, and failed to grow up. And so part of this is growing up and part of growing up is going, you know, I have been less, far less than I should ever be before my creator. And therefore 
let me accept by faith his solution because I don't have a solution that would overcome my shortcomings before him. And, and, and if he judges me justly, I would be in trouble. Yep. And, and I think that's the first step in really taking responsibility for one's actions. Because it's just about fessing up. Yeah. <clears throat> I like that. I like that a lot. And then I really, there's got to be some level of care that I must have toward my neighbor. Right. To, you know, well, I think, a, I think that's the beauty of the gospel because it's a message of God, God delivering, coming into the world, the incarnate Son of God, coming into the world, living the perfect submissive life which is God's standard and then willingly sacrificing himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin and then uh, that if you put your trust in that instead of yourself then he'll forgive you that's grace that's true grace that's true mercy that's voluntary sacrifice motivated by love so if i'm if i do that first then i i think i will be charitable towards my neighbor i'll go beyond just trading with them, but to be charitable towards them as well and you know that's what that's where good communities are government's never charitable it can't it doesn't have anything to be charitable with um and so it can never produce the good society. It, it's, it doesn't have the ability uh, to do so. But that, you know, the socialists of our day, they think they're going to get to utopia via government and the law. And, and it's, it's not going to happen. They're going to end up with hell on earth. So uh, I would say that's where I would like to wrap it up. I, there's not much I can add to that, sir. So good job. <laughs> you know? All right. I, I appreciate that. Okay. As always, thank you, Paul. I look forward to uh, seeing you again, which will more than likely be October. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, that will work perfectly well for me. Thanks, James. Right. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.